So our reading this evening is from Romans chapter 12, verses 2 to 5. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 2 to 5. It'll be on the screens or you can turn with me in your Bibles if you have them. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. But by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you. My name is Mark. If I haven't met you yet, I look forward to that soon. And um, this is the second sermon in a series based in Romans 12. If you weren't here last week, can I commend to you Stephen's first sermon on Romans 12, 1 to 2, absolutely cracking message. Uh, Do plug into that online. Now, the American novelist Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote Fight Club, which was later made into a movie, uh, has said this, we can spend our lives letting the world around us tell us who we are, sane or insane, saints or sex addicts, heroes or victims, letting history tell us how good or bad we are, letting our past decide our future. Or we can decide for ourselves. We can decide for ourselves. But how do we decide for ourselves? What's our gold standard for discovering who we are? This is the issue which St. Paul is tackling in this passage. And he's going to ask two questions of each of us. The first question is this. Who am I? Who are you? A question with huge implications for your relationship with God, your moral and your spiritual well-being, your mental flourishing. And then his second question, who are we? Who are we together? A question with real implications in terms of how we relate to one another and do life together. Paul says that we need to renew our minds in relation to answering both of these questions. He's not under any illusions about our need to experience transformation. And Paul's message here about who you are and who we are together just comes like a whirlwind into the culture of his time and also into and against the culture of our age. The spirit of this age, an age of tribalism and divisive debate and identity agendas. So let's consider his first question, who am I? Now, how do you evaluate yourself? If I'm a business, it's going to be in terms of my productivity. If a university, in terms of exam results. If a football team, in terms of our league standing. But how do I evaluate myself as a human being and as a Christian? So often, the way that I tend to do it is I evaluate myself in relation either to the mirror or to the world. 
I look in the mirror and I think about my flesh desires and my own personal preferences, or I look at the world and I allow myself somehow to be subtly conformed to its image. And Paul writes this instead. He says, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And that little phrase, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, it literally means according to the measuring rod that God has given you. What is your measuring rod in life? Who is your measuring rod? St. Paul is saying here that our measuring rod is to be Jesus Christ, God's revelation of himself in his son, Jesus. Jesus is our gold standard for evaluating who we are. He is the plumb line for evaluating when we are coming off the spine of who we are in Christ, in terms of our thinking and our actions and our behavior. And specifically here, in terms of pride and feeling inflated in ourselves. Because Paul writes here, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. What is pride? Pride is subtle. Pride is self-love. It wants us to be lovable because of ourselves, because of our performance, because of our achievements. It bases itself in comparison. We spend a lot of time comparing ourselves with other people. By contrast, Paul, who is an ex-persecutor of Christians, writes this soberly and humbly. He says, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you. He speaks with thanksgiving because he knows that he is a sinner saved by grace. That is what defines him. He knows that his measuring rod is Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference. When we see ourselves like this, as Jesus sees us, as sinners saved by his grace, we see ourselves truthfully and correctly and soberly. And we see ourselves humbly. Humility is not confusing ourselves with God. Humility is the truth about myself. No better and no worse either. Humility has no fear of being unlovable because it knows that it is undeservedly loved. Do you sense any lack of humility or pride in your life this evening? But I think that in Oxford our problem is often the opposite. I think that often we can feel deflated in this place. We can suffer low self-esteem. We can fall prey to that kind of inner critical voice that likes to beat us up. We can experience imposter syndrome. Before I became a Christian, when I used to be a theatre director, I was at one time running a large theatre up north. And I remember going into meetings sometimes and just kind of having that sense of fraud written across my face. I don't know whether you've ever felt that in any situation. It went on for some time. I finally went to a meeting uh, for those with imposter syndrome, but I felt I didn't belong. <laughs> and this tendency to think less of ourselves, it may not play out on the surface of our lives. We can be high achievers 
and still suffer low self-esteem. I mean, maybe you're a perfectionist. Maybe you're a perfectionist. You set such high expectations for yourself that making the smallest mistake really throws you. Maybe you like to consider yourself an expert, an expert in your field. You like to know all the knowledge and information about your subject in advance of a meeting, but you're afraid of looking stupid when you don't have the answer. Maybe you're a soloist. You actually function most comfortably working by yourself. And asking for help makes you feel a fraud. Perhaps you behave like a bit of a superman or a superwoman. You've got to push harder than all those around you in order to prove to yourself inside that you're not an imposter. You feel inwardly stressed and empty if you're not accomplishing something. Now, is feeling less than, is that a sin? Or is it just a wound, a psychological wound? It's a, it's a sin. Because thinking of ourselves as less isn't humility. It is false pride. It is inverted pride. How so? Because in Paul's words, we're still thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. How come, Mark? Because we're placing our low view of ourselves above the high loving view that Jesus actually has of us. This isn't humility, it's false humility. And yet at the same time, we suffer in that place because we're feeling a sense of shame. We're feeling a sense of not being right in ourselves. We don't feel good about ourselves. How do we heal from that? Well, thankfully, God sends Jesus, who isn't just our measuring rod. He is our medicine cabinet. And he brings the medicine for healing our shame. He loves us out of our shame. He loves us because he cannot but love us. Again, it's not that we're inherently lovable or that we can somehow earn his love. No, it's just that he is ferociously Loving. His love will not say no. It's got to wrap us in its warm embrace. So Jesus convicts us of our sin of pride, but he heals us of our shame. He convicts the proud, the Pharisees, and yet at the same time he lifts up the broken and lowly, Peter, who's denied him. A bruised reed Jesus does not and will not break. And humility, thinking of ourselves with sober judgment, that heals our shame too. Because as the real me meets the real you in this family, I learn to be loved and accepted with all my defects of character. I join a community of sufferers who can love me back into life. Love sets us free. Now, how do we meet Jesus as our measuring rod? Well, we meet him at the cross. We meet him at that place where we can see him glorified and yet where at the same time we find ourselves on level ground with all our fellow sinners and sufferers. The cross gives us perspective. The cross opens our eyes to both our sins and our wounds and it enables us to see ourselves as we really are. 
at the cross, we see that because Jesus made himself inferior, we don't have to try to feel superior. We see that because he accepted limits, we don't have to go around trying to break every limit. We see that because he allowed himself to be scorned, we don't have to crave the applause. We see that because he made himself unlovable to the world, we can find love outside the world's approval. You can't stay close to Jesus and not die to every false idea about yourself or other people. Jesus burns up every false perception. And why? Because he wants you to receive his love. And he wants you to act as a conduit of his love to others. Which brings us to Paul's second question that he's considering in this passage. Who are we? Who are we together? Now this is his second question, but it's not a secondary question to Paul. Paul's saying, don't put your me identity above your we identity. Because in the ancient Middle Eastern world, identity is relational. Our relationships form our identity as we find ourselves in a network of relationships with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, themselves existing in family, and our relationships with one another. And Paul now adds his second great image in this passage. He's given us the measuring rod, and now he's going to give us one about the human body. He says this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul is saying that our true identity exists in our togetherness, in our corporate identity, our identity within the body of Jesus, his church. Now, really think about this. Your body is central to who you are. It is who you are. It is why you are. It is how you are. It is where you are. It is absolutely intrinsic. And Paul says that together, we are what? We are the body of Jesus. What an extraordinary thought. That's how close we are to Jesus. As close as our own bodies. When Jesus says, when two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. That means that he is not only here by his Holy Spirit within this body, he is also here between the different parts of the body because we make up his body. It's a staggering idea. Let me come to uh, an illustration to try and bring this home. And uh, I just want to kind of give you a, a, a trigger warning here. Uh, this is a little medical illustration. If you feel squeamish, don't worry. There's not going to be anything too graphic on the screens, but I just want to warn you. So this part of the sermon is called the barista's fingertip. And uh, this on the screens now is Ellie. And Ellie is... Yes, let's call it out for Ellie. In fact, Ellie, give us a wave. You're back there somewhere. Yes, thank you. So Ellie is a barista. 
in our church, and she's married to Jake. And this is a very sharp Swiss carving knife that they were given as a wedding present. And um, this is what happened to Ellie about a month ago when she was using that knife. She had a little bit of an accident. Now, the story has ended well, but let's have our graphic image. You'll still see there's a bit of the finger there that's missing. That's the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, no, let's get back to the finger. You can just see with the fingertip, Jack. Let's have the fingertip. Bless you. You can see she's sliced off you know, quite a sizable chunk of the edge of her fingertip. Now, I don't know why this is, but Ellie then puts it in this place, uh, the fridge in her home. And apparently a month later, it is still there. <laughs> don't ask me why. You can ask her directly afterwards. It's very odd. But there it sits inside a glass jar. And I'm not going to share the contents of the fridge in a photo with you. This fingertip of Ellie's tells me what I am not as part of the body of Christ. I am not separate from others. I'm not separate from others. Ellie's fingertip can't live outside her body. A body part can't do that. The fingertip is still in the fridge, but it's not alive. Do you ever try to live out your faith by yourself, just at home? Maybe I don't need to come to church. Well, if you do that, you're acting like an amputated limb. You're acting like a severed fingertip, not as part of the body of Jesus Christ. Paul is asking you to confront anything that says that your experience here tonight in worship or listening to the word that it's about you, that it's about me. It's not. It's about us. It's about what's happening in the body of Christ and as the Holy Spirit moves between us. You've got to belong to become. You've got to belong to become in the Christian life. Our formation happens in Jesus' body. And this is why discipleship, growing in the love and the knowledge and becoming like Jesus, it happens most powerfully in groups. When you're in one of your midweek groups or when you're in an intentional discipleship group like we do in good ground or break ground. Secondly, Ellie's fingertip tells me this. I am not superior or inferior to any other one of you, any other part of the body. Ellie's fingertip is priceless. It is extraordinary. It is unique. It is a work of God in creation, along with every other part of her body. In fact, her body so values her fingertip that it's actually creating a new one at the moment. You can ask to see afterwards. <laughs> Do we devalue parts of our own body? We may not like certain parts of our body, but hopefully we don't devalue them. No. And so we're not to devalue the amazing diversity of body parts that God has brought together in us. The fact is that God is far more unexpectedly diverse in his ideas about who he wants to draw into the family, into the body, 
than we ever will be. And if you think about who Jesus calls as disciples, right back at the beginning, calling Simon, a revolutionary zealot, alongside Matthew, a tax collector working for the Romans, you just begin to get some idea of this. Now, I personally find this very challenging because I love the ethnic diversity of this church. I love the fact that we're drawn from all kinds of ages and stages and backgrounds of life. But what about the diversity of us as people, as personalities? I mean, when I perhaps find one or two people in this thousand-strong church, not in this congregation, a little bit personally challenging. What then? Well, that's when I need to remember these words by an expert on community, a guy called Parker Palmer who lived in community for many years, decades. He says community is that place where the person you least want to live with always lives. And when that person moves away, someone else arises immediately to take his or her place. The thing is, we love the idea of community until we meet the person that winds us up. Friends, they are a precious part of the body of Christ. For St. Paul, difficult people are gifts to us for our growth. It's so easy to project our stuff onto another person, the things that we feel uncomfortable, the things that we find hard to accept within ourselves. We need to withdraw our projections. We need to confront every struggle that we have with another person in our small group or in our church and rejoice that it has the potential to spiritually transform us. Of course, there may be some people who are intrinsically challenging in our community. What do we need then? We need a lot of love and a lot of patience. And the Spirit wants to grow those in us too. And then thirdly, Ellie's fingertip tells me this, I'm not independent of other people. I'm not independent of anyone else here at all. We are not gathered here by God to simply briefly coexist in this space and then disappear off again into our busy lives and into the ether. We are called to be interdependent. Ellie needs all of her fingers. And her body has been committed to healing that fingertip by sending white blood cells there and restitching the skin over the last month. How do I feel when I am ill? Do I care about the body part that is not well? Of course I do. And of course you do. And that is exactly how we're intended to feel about any part of the body of Christ who is suffering, whether they're in our community or whether they're our brothers and sisters worldwide or in the persecuted church. Comforting each other with the comfort we've received ourselves. This is part of our Christian life. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honoured, all the parts share its joy. I love this comment made by a man who works on the land, who works with his hands, a bit like Ellie. He says this of Jesus. There's a reason he called us to his body and not his estate. 
A body is connected with sinews and veins, but an estate is divided with fences and lines. You've got to cut down the fences or you cut up the body. This is why there must be nothing separating one of us from the other, why our unity is critically important. So that's what we are not as body parts. What then are we? Well, we each have a unique function and we belong within an amazing larger whole. And it's together that we allow the glory of God and the beauty of his body, the church, to be seen. I think this is why we, we love hearing stories about what's going on amongst the different groups and people of our church because they let us see what the whole body of Jesus Christ is doing in Oxford in 2023. The legs, the students going out on the streets to spread the gospel, the eyes, the prophets in our midst who see what God sees and want to encourage others around them by naming it, the lungs, our intercessors who breathe in the Spirit of God and then breathe out God-soaked prayers, the kidneys, members of our pastoral team who pray that the spiritual toxins in our lives are driven out, the throat, the members of our worship team who feel praise just rising up in them and love to lead us into the courts of the king. The backside. Our verges who get off their backsides <laughs> to give us chairs to support our backsides. The ears, the ears of our midweek group leaders listening sensitively to those in their midst who are suffering. The heart, a good ground mentor, passionately disciple-making, their heart on fire with the word of God. It's in responding to these calls that we live out our roles within the body of Jesus Christ. Ellie's fingertip enables her to live out her calling as a barista. She needs both her hands and both her fingertips, all her fingertips, to make cappuccinos and macchiatos and lattes and so on. And why does she do that? To delight her customers. Well, we have got a calling too. And all the body parts are required in order for this calling to be fulfilled. You each have God-given gifts, and we're going to hear more about those next week uh, when we have preaching on the next passage. But no one is second division. No one is here by accident. No one is without a role or purpose. It takes all of us to do what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels through his body. And we are meant to do the same things through our bodies. In other words, witnessing him, laying hands on people and praying for healing and freedom, sharing life and our goods with them, inviting them for meals and so on. Doing with our bodies what he does with his. The fact is, is that when this body is healthy, when the relationships are well, Jesus is joyful because his body is well. And when this body is sick or passive or divided or a little bit consumerist, just waiting to be fed, Jesus suffers 
because it's his body. We are his body. And we want to bring joy to Jesus. Who we are as a body is integral to who he is in the world today. Our health allows Jesus to become visible in the world. And it enables the kingdom of heaven to advance. Let me begin to come into land with a, a story that just illustrates this relationship between the quality of our interactions and the advance of God's kingdom. At the end of the Second World War, a group of young Christian women in Germany were in a place called, a city called Darmstadt when the Allies carpet-bombed it. And they were so shaken in their souls because they'd almost lost their lives that they decided to do something radical. And they decided to form a Christian community to pray for Germany after the war, to atone for Germany's sins and to pray atonement for the Jewish people. And these young women, they were amazing, and they built this entire community by hand out of bricks. And there was a period when they were doing this, they were building the chapel, and they were working with a dump cart, a big metal dump cart, on a railway track to bring supplies to the building area. And while they did that, some of the other young women were in the prayer room praying that God would bless the work. And one day, just out of nowhere, the dump cart kept jumping off the railway lines. Big metal dump cart. And these young women who were tired and worn down and had been building for months, they had to keep putting it back on. It kept jumping off again. Eventually they got so frustrated and the woman in charge of them said, I think we need to go into the prayer room and join the others and ask God what's going on here. So they went into the prayer room and they said to the Lord, Lord, why have you taken the blessing away from our hard work? And what God showed them was this, was that there were all kinds of unspoken resentments and judgments and anger amongst them towards each other. The woman in charge said, these sins against love stood between us and God and our prayers couldn't go beyond that ceiling. And now the painful guilt of these sins against love came to us. We begged forgiveness of one another. We came as poor sinners to God and we received afresh his gracious forgiveness. We went back to work and the dump cart never once jumped the truck again. God's kingdom was advanced while the dump cart stayed on the tracks. And it stayed on the tracks when the relationships between these young women were clean. Our call is to become a community that advances God's kingdom in Oxford and Oxfordshire. And to do that, we need to make sure that the dump cart doesn't jump off the tracks. And this can happen if we see ourselves the right by evaluating ourselves according to the measuring rod of Jesus Christ, and if we all take up our role within this body. Don't stay inside the fridge. Don't stay inside the fridge. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>